This uh, last week uh, was the anniversary of 75 years uh, from uh, the famous D-Day, World War II. The Allies at that time needed to, to open a new front in Europe in order to help the advancing Russian army from the east and to stop the German expansion in Europe. And um, I don't want to get into details, uh, a plan long in the making of at least a couple of years, hundreds of thousands of people involved, hundreds of ships, hundreds of thousands of planes, and uh, um, a lot of things to be prepared, to be planned, and uh, um, as we all know, it was successful. But not too many of us know uh, the fact that uh, the success of uh, Operation Overlord, as it was named, um, was uh, because of the faithfulness of a simple man. Uh, actually, uh, John, uh, John Kennedy, when he took the office from uh, the president, Eisenhower, who was the commander-in-chief of Operation Overlord, he asked him, what was the success? What do you think was the success of the D-Day? to break the, the front lines of the war and to, to bring the Allies at the west side of Europe. And Eisenhower said, it's simple, we the Allies had better meteorologists than the Germans. Because uh, firstly, and you'll see what I want to get with this, firstly, uh, it was planned that the operation to start on the 5th of June, not on the 6th of June. Uh, so the weather was something that they couldn't do anything about it. Everything was prepared. Imagine the amount of vessels and ships and people and troops and uh, uh, munition, munition and uh, planes involved and everything. And they needed perfect conditions. But around that time, on the 5th of June, uh, consulting the general uh, chief, Eisenhower, consulting with the meteorologist who he could trust, said, I don't think, I don't think it's, it's good to do, because he wanted to do it in that morning, the 5th of June. And the weather that morning was terrible on the channel, and it would have been a disaster. Tens of thousands of people would have died and lots of equipment lost. It would have been, a, the operation would have been a disaster. But uh, General Eisenhower postponed, imagine hundreds of thousands of people because he had trust in the faithfulness of one man. And that man, his name was James Stagg, and he was a chief captain meteorologist for the British Navy, and he said, I don't think we should do it on the 5th of June. I think we should do it on the next day when looking at the charts and how the winds will blow from the Atlantic into the channel said we might have a briefing in the morning of the 6th. And this is how it was. And that's the story why the Operation Overlord and D-Day was a success. And this changed all the faith 
all the future of the World War II because of the faithfulness of one person, and his name was James Stack. Um, they wanted to do, uh, if it wasn't possible on the 5th of June, General Eisenhower wanted to do it two weeks later. Uh, I'm telling you these details just to see God's hand into all of this. So we'll do it two weeks later because they needed, they needed a full moon or bright moon. They needed low tide and clear skies. And that would have been possible only two weeks later. But if they would have done it two weeks later, that time, June 1944, two weeks later from 6th of June, it was one of the most terrible storms ever recorded in the channels. So it would have been a total disaster. But God made an opening in the weather and uh, because of the faithfulness of a man, uh, uh, the wheel of the war changed. You see, it's in our human nature to be seen, to be praised, to be acknowledged and applauded for our accomplishments and gifts. Like the rubbish man in the story. And though this uh, need is good and healthy in itself, it's, it's kept in balance to be appreciated, to be acknowledged. Uh, it's a good and healthy thing to, to be praised, to, to feel valuable and appreciated. The problem with our society today and our culture is that they made this need, they transformed it into a God, a religion, in brackets. Especially with the booming of internet and social media, you need to show who you are, you need to be visible, you need to be public, you need to show where you go, you need to show what you do, you need to show your, your achievements and all that, uh, those things. Visibility, accomplishments, and success. If you don't have them, you don't exist in the world today. And reaching success and being su successful or, and famous can be a temptation even for us in the church. You have to be somebody, you have to achieve this and that and trying, which is nothing wrong into this, but we'll see it from a different perspective. There's nothing wrong with pursuing high degrees. There's nothing wrong with pursuing high achievements, top class positions, the greatest level of leadership. As uh, God told the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, you will be the head and not the tail. Hey, God wants us to develop at our best, and we remind ourselves about Daniel. He, he achieved the highest position. But we must not ignore other realities and truths related with this one. And I would like to start uh, this morning from this question. If, given this context of our world today, if all of us would reach success, high positions, fame, accomplishments, in this world. My question is this morning, who remains to serve? Who remains to collect the rubbish? I tell you what, if the rubbish man has a simple position they have and honest people 
you saw the story of the ring, you can go home and read it. If the rubbish men don't come and pick the rubbish for, should I say, two weeks, maybe for a week, we are in big trouble. Forget about your diplomas and your degrees, and if those simple men are not faithful in what they are doing, all the world is in big trouble. So what is success anyway? And who defines it? Who defines it? Our society? What does it mean to be successful? Aren't those people valuable? Because they are just rubbish men? Many times when maybe we have visited a museum, we have read a history book, or we have read about famous people, thinking at the immeasurable universe and the history of the world, maybe you have also realized, as I have realized, how insignificant and average our life really is. No major contributions to the history of the world to the science or society. I'm just a simple, ordinary person. In my family, at work, I live at this address. I go to work, I have a job. This is how most of the people are in this world. And maybe this morning, maybe we will identify with them. We can identify with them. You have a simple job, maybe it's not what you wished for. You live an ordinary life, no contributions to the science field, no contributions to the history of the world, to the, to the society. You live an average life, a modest life. And as someone said, nobody aims at mediocrity, but many hit the mark in this life. Most of the people in this world, most of them, I would say maybe 90%, on a scale of 1 to 10, in this life, they hit maybe a 5 in their development. Because this is how life is. And I remember when I was at school, in Romania, the grading system is different. You don't have A, B. You have from 1 to 10. 10 is like A plus here. Okay? And the limit between passing an exam and not passing the exam was between four and five. And colleagues were saying, oh, it was a difficult exam, you know, I don't need a six, I don't need a 10, I don't need a nine. For this exam, said, I, I want the golden five, the golden fiver. If I get the golden fiver, that's it. I, this is how most of the people live their lives. Um, few rise, few of the people of this world rise to the heights of fame wealth and power we see on TV and media wants to make us to believe this is success, this means to be successful, to be acknowledged, to be seen, to be appreciated, to be on the glass. And most people learn to accept being an average Joe or an average Jay. Some even relish the anonymity of not being seen or heard or even noticed. Yet, the Bible tells us that God has a special fondness for the lowly and insignificant. 
God has a special fondness for those who are trying to keep their heads above the water. You know, in this life, as a comparison, some are like, uh, you've seen uh, um, uh, swimming at the, the Olympics. Some of them are like, just like fish in the water, you know. And some of them are like that in this life. You just, like through the air, they go through the water. But most of the people in this world are struggling to keep their heads above the water. Most of the people in this world are trying to make the ends meet. Most of the people in this world are trying to get, not to reach oh, the first place of the Olympics marathon, second, no, at least to finish the race alive. Most of the people in this world are trying to survive another day and to earn something to feed their families and to pay the bills, so on and so forth. Maybe you find yourself in this category this morning. You're not a star, you're not a hero, you're not a chairman of a board, you're not a community leader, CEO. You're just an ordinary middle of the road, simple pew sitter. But the Bible tells us that God likes us and loves us as we are. You see, let's go to Jesus now. Jesus understood nothingness, anonymity, and obscurity. Jesus lived almost his entire life among the average and the ordinary people. In God's plan of redemption, God led the events of the things that way, that Jesus would, would, would live most of his life in a secluded place. He might have gone to Jerusalem to stay there with the, those experts in the law and economics and military and PhDs and whatever. Jesus lived his first 30 years of life, like 95% of his life, in Nazareth. You want to know what was, what meant, what was the significance of Nazareth in the first century AD? Zero. Nazareth, Palestine at that time, was a zero town. A whopping population of, at the most, 400 persons. Dirt streets, no downtown center, no public inscriptions. Nazareth produced nothing to export and imported nothing. So poor were its people. Hardly any physical evidence exists in archaeology that it was an important place. Not even the Romans had a Roman garrison there. Because people of Nazareth were simple people. They tried, most of them, to make the ends meet of every day and to survive another day through working at the oil press, uh, whatever they had there, uh, animals, uh, shepherds, little things, not major contributions and achievements, just to put something on the table of their families. And Jesus, in God's eternal plan of salvation, had to live 
with all his potential among these people for, for 30 years. Why? Jesus was familiar with anonymity. He grew up in a secluded area among fellow villagers of irrelevant importance. And you remember what Nathaniel said to Philip when he came to come. I think we have found the Messiah. He comes from, from Nazareth. And what did the other one said? You remember the Gospels? Can? At least something good. But that was the understanding of the people about Nazareth. That was the reality. Can anything good, anything, at least something good come out of Nazareth? Can anything, is it possible? Nathaniel said, nah, it's not possible. From Nazareth, Messiah. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Insignificant by worldly standards, feckless and unimportant people were his neighbors. You see, when we imagine Jesus and his life, and here the Middle Ages art with his development doesn't help us too much. Why? Because Jesus is represented in art and uh, in the paintings like you know, curly hair, blue eyes, you know, quite shiny face. Um, like uh, some picture you see some art uh, paintings like a, like a model you know very very handsome very attractive very oh this is Jesus you know but the Bible as we have read presents another image of Jesus Jesus was a person more common than we think we imagine here with long hair, and probably didn't have at that time, probably people have, men had to carry, uh, to, to have short hair, and because of the temperature and the humidity and whatever, I don't want to get into details. But Jesus looked like uh, most of the people in this world. He was a very common young man. He was so common that if you would pass the streets and Jesus would pass, you wouldn't recognize him. That's what the Bible wants to say when it says in Isaiah 53, his countenance had nothing to attract us. It doesn't mean that Jesus was ugly. That's not the point of the, uh, of the verse. The meaning of the Hebrew expression there is that Jesus wasn't a model. Someone to attract, as you see them today on the newspapers, the magazine, you know, how handsome, how shiny he is. No, Jesus was a uh, such a common young man that you wouldn't say that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Why? Because he, he had, uh, that was his mission, not to attract the people to himself through his external countenance. Nothing out of the average outside, a common man. What did Jesus do for 30 years? That was the, the custom at that time for the, the, the children to take the, the job of the, of the parents. And as Joseph, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, the carpenter? Well, this carpentry in the first century AD in Palestine was a very tough job. You couldn't find, you couldn't make tools so easily. 
and also the carpenters, because in that area, harsh and dry area of Palestine, uh, don't think that they have the woods we have here, which are left here in Dartmoor or whatever, no. Most of the people worked at that time with some wood, but most of the work even of carpenters helping was cutting stone. And I saw a documentary, someone was uh, invited on the internet, someone was invited a Nazareth and uh, the production team created the restored uh, like carpenter's place and uh, he took the, um, uh, the moderator went with the, his uh, guide and the guy told him, look, this is how they used to work. They had this, uh, this tool and with the hammer they had to, would you like to try? And uh, the moderator took the, the hammer and gave him a stone there. Try and, and he gave 10, ten shots and this. I'm already tired. I mean, he was full of muscles. Most of the time we imagine Jesus like, you know, he was a skinny person. He was so kind and gentle that if you would touch him, he would fall away, you know? No. Jesus was a very strong man because what he did was very difficult and challenging. Working as a mason, masonry and carpentry was very difficult. That's why Jesus was very strong. He knew what it means to toil. Jesus knew what it means to, to sweat. Jesus knew what it means to be hungry, to be thirsty. All things which we identify with self, uh, today in our, in our common jobs. Jesus understood and lived through experience all those things. Why? Because the Bible said as we read in Hebrews. Though he was a son. Though he was a son of God. He had to learn what? Obedience through the things he had suffered. And being made perfect, what do you mean being made perfect? Wasn't Jesus perfect already? Was he or wasn't he? He was perfect. But Jesus lacked this experience in order to save us. He had to identify and to learn through experience what human suffering means. To learn what means to toil, to sweat, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to be tired, to work hard for your wages, to provide something for your family. Jesus had to learn these things in order to understand us in this world. And that's why he became a savior for us. You know, it's very interesting. Another aspect probably you, you, you didn't think of it many times or ever. It's very interesting in the Gospels, I don't know if you ever noticed, in the, the Gospels say there are only two episodes in the Gospels which deal with the first 30 years of Jesus' life. Most of the Gospels deal with what Jesus did from 30 years old until he was crucified and he resurrected three years and a half later. What about the first 30 years of his life? Well, we have only two major events. The first major event was his birth, okay? And the second major episode we have 
was the moment when he was taken at 12 years old at the temple and he was lost by Joseph and Mary. You remember? These are the two major events from the first 30 years of life of Jesus. Anything else? No. Anonymity. And it's very interesting, besides these two events, and especially after the second one, I don't know if you ever, if you ever noticed this, have you noticed that the Gospels don't say anything else about Joseph, his father? Have you ever noticed? Why doesn't Joseph appear after the 12 years old moment of Jesus at the temple? When the story ends that they went home and he was subdued, submitted to them and he was faithful. Why? You know why? More than probable and I think Ellen White says something in Desire of Ages at the beginning of a chapter called Baptism. That when Jesus heard the call of John the Baptist... He knew that his time has come. And then he put his tools aside, carpenter. And then he greeted his mother, period. Where was Joseph? Well, more than probably, Joseph had passed away. You never find Joseph later in the Gospels. You never find Joseph at the cross as the earthly father of Jesus. Why? Because, more than probably, Joseph passed away before Jesus started his ministry. What does this tell us? Does Jesus understand the human suffering when we lose something? When, well, I talk from my experience when I've lost my father. When you've lost someone dear from your family, does Jesus understand you? Yes. Because he cried with his mother, with his brothers and sisters. And the, 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 the overwhelming thing is that Jesus didn't do any miracle in his 30 years of life. First 30 years of life. Question. Why didn't Jesus resurrect Joseph, his father. Did he have the power to do it? Yes. yes. Why didn't he do it? Because he learned to obey through suffering. Because Jesus had to learn to identify with human suffering. When people lose people in this world, in order to understand what we feel, how it is, that, that hole inside us. He could have resurrected Joseph. He didn't do it. Because he had to learn to be like us. What is the lesson for us from Jesus' life? From this perspective, of maybe probably you have never thought about this perspective. Jesus' life in the first 30 years. What is the lesson for us today? No one is trivial to God. No one is considered irrelevant or unimportant or average. And God forbid that in our church there will ever come a time when simple members are less important than personalities of this church. I hope 
we will never live such times when someone important comes to speak and you don't have time to talk with an anonymous member because he has a simple life and you have a degree or an achievement. No one is unimportant to God. No one. If Jesus could live 30 years as an anonymous in a zero town, secluded, hidden by the world, without being acknowledged, with all his potential, to simple people, through hard work, for 30 years old, any of us should and can do it. God forbid that should, we should be experts in the Bible and other things, but we will forget to bend and make time to listen for an anonymous in church or on the streets. And Jesus had this capacity to identify with people. When Jesus talked, he didn't say things or his parables. He didn't say something like you hear sometimes today, you know, expert and this and that. He said something and you, not, you need to stay with the Oxford diction, Dictionary. Whoa, 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 what did he say? What does that term mean? No. When Jesus said the parable, he knew a par he, he used a simple language for as a peasant and someone with a PhD to understand it at the same time. This is what the Gospels tell us. He had this incredible ability to empathize and to connect with any category of people. And I want to remind you this morning, if you don't have high achievements, high degrees, or there's nothing wrong to pursue them, to aim high, but if you don't have them, I want to remind you and all of this church, the greatest treasure this church has, it's the simple lay member. It's not those in the important positions whatever as important as they are called by God without the simple member without you who are sitting there without you without you without the simple member of this church maybe you have an average life with troubles at home and family and you know paying bills and going to work without the simple member of this church there is no need for church, there is no need for a board meeting, there is no need for a missionary project, there is no need for anything, because without the simple member, the church doesn't exist. There is no need for pastors, for missionaries, no, no. You are the most important treasure of this church. Jesus, in his first 30 years of his life, didn't perform any miracle. Yet, the love inside him, his kindness transformed lives and influenced people. What was Jesus' work in his first 30 years of life? You know what it was? Something we can do, all of us. A word of sympathy there. A word of encouragement there. A bag of food for the lady across the street. A prayer of encouragement for a peasant, neighbor peasant who comes with the cows from the field, working the field. Singing songs to encourage and whispering songs at works and his colleagues were acting. What, what are you whispering? Well, it sounds encouraging. Well, it's a song about God and 
and the, days, the day at work for his colleagues go smoother when he whispered songs. No miracle. And this, these things made the sharing of the burdens of the people around him lighter. We are in danger as a church of neglecting this simple personal work for the simple-minded paria of the society maybe and focus on big things and projects and accomplishments. Yet nothing else will replace this personal effort in our collective mission as a church. Yes, we can get involved in projects and high achievements on a common, at a common collective level. But if we neglect this secret which Jesus had to identify one-to-one -one with the people, we have missed the point. If it's challenging for you and me to identify with the people, poor person on the street, or someone who doesn't have your knowledge or your degrees, and you can't explain it in a simple language, you can't identify and empathize with that person, something's wrong. This morning, I want to, for all of us to get from this message, this idea. God does not want us, firstly, to be successful. God does not want us, firstly, to be successful in this world. No, no. He wants us, firstly, to be faithful. And that is a big difference. God does not want us, firstly, to be successful. From the perspective and the definition of success in the world today, Jesus was a wretched young man for his first 30 years. No, no, not in his, in his father's eyes. You know why Jesus was successful? Yeah, somewhere hidden there, somewhere in, I don't know, Cornwall, Devon, Nazareth, somewhere in a village, no one knows about you, that you're a carpenter and you're meeting the same boring people every day and you're sweating and you're waiting for the day to finish. You're hungry and you have bills to pay and... Jesus was successful because he was faithful. In an unobtrusive way, Jesus worked for the people from his very childhood. And this was why, we are being told in Desire of Ages, page 92, this was why Jesus, after his public ministry began, so many people heard him gladly. Why? Because in his first 30 years, he didn't do miracles. He didn't have the high achievement. He just worked one-to-one -one with people. Encouraging, helping in a practical way with food, with work as he could. This is why, after he started his public ministry, so many people heard him gladly. You see how the success of this world is? The worldly success works like that. The aim is the same, you know, to achieve high, to develop as much as possible, to, to gain degrees. But the focus is 
again and again where I need to achieve this, I need to do that, I need to do this, and to achieve that, and that position, and, to, and the focus is on you. Again and again, and the focus is on you. And never a person who focuses on herself, on himself, never he will reach the true success. That person never will be happy, because this is how God built us. But the biblical success works differently. When you focus on others, as Jesus went, he became humble and humble and lower and lower. That doesn't mean you shouldn't pursue your degrees and whatever, do whatever God uh, has influenced you to do. No. But to be humble, to know how to identify and to empathize, empathize with people. When you focus on others and others and you give and you give, that's when you're lifted up. And I'm coming towards a close now. Sorry, we have started a bit later. This is a real guy. His name is Kim Ung Yong. He's a South Korean born in Seoul in 1963. At the moment we're speaking, he has the highest IQ in the world. If the regretted Stephen Hawking, emeritus prof professor at Oxford and uh, he had 160 IQ, one of the most brilliant minds in the world. This guy from South Korea has 210. He started talking at six months old. At three years old, was reading already. Between 12 and 15 years, he worked, believe it or not, in the research department for NASA. In the height of his fame and success, by worldly standards at least, he suddenly decided to return to his homeland and to apply for an assistant job at a university. And at the moment, he's a professor there. After a while, he decided to give an interview because the people were amazed. What happened? Are you nuts? You have the most brilliant mind in the world and you give up of these all achievements and these possibilities and this fame and this success. And he confessed in that interview that at the height of his fame, he was the most unhappy person. Why? Because the focus was on him. And he said, quote, you can have a huge intellect in this life. You can be brilliant at math. You can have undeniable linguistic capabilities. But if you fail at this one point, emotional intelligence, if you fail of having empathy for others, nothing matters. I've been up there where most of the people want to reach. There's nothing there. It's desolate. Go back to the simple things of life. End of quote. So, maybe next time when you will feel down, maybe you'll feel depressed because of your ordinary and insignificant life, remember that Jesus was there where you are now. Remember that Jesus knows 
how it is to live as an anonymous and to live a simple life. Remember that Jesus is close to you. He's even there. In Jesus, you belong. Not for what you have or your achievements. In Jesus, you are somebody. In Jesus, you sit with him on the throne of the universe. For Jesus, we are precious, not for all the things we have, I repeat, or for our degrees of our achievements or how much we will go high in life. For Jesus, we are special. You know why? Because we are unique. There has never been, there isn't, and there will never be any person like you and me in this history of the world. And that's why Jesus loved us. Because we are unique for him. And I would like to finish with this last verse as an encouragement. Isaiah 43 verse 4. Since you are precious and honored in my sight. And because I love you. I will give people in exchange for you. And nations in exchange for your life. May God bless you where you are, in your life, in your work, and may you feel his presence in your everyday life. And may this message give you courage to give it to others and to be a blessing for others as Jesus was. Amen.